A few years ago, when I was formulating my own theology of hope, um, and that was one of the, we, uh, before you get uh, to be a, a minister, before you, they, along your path in seminary, there are a number of committees that you must meet with, and they ask you a variety of questions. I was asked, what was my theology of hope? And I thought, oh, expletive, beats me. So, <clears throat> I found this book, Hunting for Hope, A Father's Journey, and it's written by Scott Russell Sanders. Um, Sanders and his 16-year-old son, in, at the beginning of this book, are taking a, a hiking trip uh, to the Rocky Mountains, and, and they've been on the trip for a few days, and tension, this is a 16-year-old, a teenager, tension is, is building, and it fills the air while they're driving from one hike to another. And Sanders writes... We, we drove in the depths of Big Thompson Canyon where the roads swerved along a frothy river between sheer rock face and spindly guardrail. I could bear the silence no longer. So, what are my hang-ups? I demanded. How do I ruin everything? You don't want to know, my son replied. Well, I want to know. What is it about me that grates on you? You wouldn't understand, my son said. Try me. Well, my son cut a look at me, shrugged, then stared back through the windshield. You're just so out of touch. Uh, with what? With my whole world. You hate everything that's fun. You hate television and movies and video games. You hate my music. Well, I like some of your music, as long as it's not too loud. Uh, you hate advertising, uh, he said quickly, in a, on a roll now. You, you hate billboards and lotteries and, and developers and logging companies and big corporations. You hate snowmobiles and jet skis. You hate malls and fashions and cars. You look at any car and all you think of is pollution, traffic, roadside crap. You say fast food's poisoning our bodies and TV is poisoning our minds. You think the internet is just another scam for selling stuff. You think business is a conspiracy to rape the earth. Well, well, that doesn't bother you? Well, of course it does, but that's the world. That's where we've got to live. It's not going to go away just because you don't approve. What's the good of spitting on it? I, I don't spit on it. I, I grieve over it. Well, my son was still for a moment, then resumed quietly. What's the good of grieving if you can't change anything? Who says you can't change anything? You do. You do. Maybe not with your mouth, but with your eyes. Your view is, is, of things is totally dark. It, it bums me out. You make me feel the planet's dying and people are to blame and nothing can be done about it. There's no room for hope. Maybe you can go get by without hope, but I can't. I've got a lot of living still to do. I, I have to believe there's a, a way we can get out of this mess. Otherwise, what's the point? Why study? Why work? Why do anything if it's all going to hell? Well, at this point, Sanders wonders, had I really deprived my son of hope? Was this the deeper grievance that I had passed on to him so young, my anguish over the world? Was this what lurked between us 
driving us apart, the, the demon called despair. You're right, I finally told him. Life's meaningless without hope. But, but I think you're wrong to say I've given up. Well, it seems that way to me, as if you think we're doomed. Nobody, nobody, I, I don't think we're doomed. It's just that nearly everything I care about is under assault. See, that's what I mean. You're so worried about the fate of the earth, you, you can't enjoy anything. We, we come to these mountains and you bring the shadows with you. You've got me seeing nothing but darkness. And we do, and we do. We do see darkness. We do feel despair. And that darkness and despair needs to be heard. In, in the violence of winter, in this time of cracking and coldness and danger, this, this stone we hold in our hearts, in, in our stomachs, in our heads, in our limbs, is fear. Fear that the world is too broken to mend. Fear that we are too broken to mend. We're nothing but dry leaves, sorrow, grief, at the immeasurable loss of potential, loss of full and joyful and flourishing life. We hold a, a stick of anger, of outrage, that so much money and energy and time is given to wars, to greed, to miserliness, to mindless consumption. And, and we all know the litany. Global weather change, violence everywhere, everywhere, abroad and in our streets, in our homes. Hunger, homelessness, those lingering variant viruses. And on a personal level, Divorce, depression, addiction, failure, disease, death. These are, are the pain-filled truths that must be heard, that, that need to be heard. And good glorious day in the morning, where do we find hope in this scenario? Now every understanding of hope from all those folks that I've read Every understanding of hope begins with an honest reckoning with the absence of hope, that dark night of the soul when, when nothing comforts and nothing reassures. And Scott Sanders writes, unless we acknowledge the power of despair, sooner or later, later it will overwhelm us, if only because we cannot escape our own death or the spectacle of pain. We cannot forget to unlearn the dismal numbness that we feel, that litany of pollution and poverty, pain and death, that is, that is, that is part of our lives. So we need to look long and hard and deep for hope. So that first step, acknowledging our despair, saying, oh my goodness, Oh my gracious, and the spring of expletives that come along with that. But then we need to think about what exactly is hope? How can we possibly measure it? How might we distinguish hope from wishful thinking? From my wet magic wand. Now this is from the Children's Museum in Bangor, Maine, where I did my student ministry. It's, 
I, I told my, my great-granddaughter, I gave her one of these too, it absolutely will work, you know. And for a five-year-old, that is, it will. It's wishful thinking. Now, American founding father, Patrick Henry, in a speech he made in 1775, stated, it is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of the siren till she transform us into beasts. And good old Benjamin Franklin in his Poor Richard's Almanac, he says, he that lives upon hope will die fasting. Not much substance and sustenance in hope. So hope may be illusory. It may be self-indulgent, delusional, so high in the sky as to be unobtainable. But, but hope is something more. Hope needs to be anchored in the present and in, as Howard Zinn says, in an infinite succession of presence, of present moments, to be more than an illusion. Now, Unitarian Universalist minister uh, John Frederick Muir, um, in, in a book that I, I love, um, it's called um, um, Faith of a Heretic. It's, it's uh, about various theological terms and how a Unitarian and a Universalist might look at words like God or hope or faith um, in, in a, a different way. And Muir writes, the Latin word for hope is sperare, which comes from an Indo-European root meaning to expand. It's a little bit, a little like inspiration, comes from a slightly different root, but to be hopeful means to feel expansive, to feel no constraint, to go beyond the limits and embrace of a, a wider view, to, to think beyond the boundaries. And, and in his book, Hunting for Hope, Scott Sanders writes, hope is an orientation of the heart. And so he, throughout that book, he searches for hope in his own life. And he produces his own litany of sources, his own foundation, his own rock on which to anchor hope. Sanders finds hope in wildness, in wilderness, in its beauty, the, the generosity of wild gifts. He writes the fertility of nature and the abundance of creatures and forms constantly rising. The very resilience of the fabric of life brings him hope. Sanders finds hope in the body, in its sensuality, its healing powers, its fierce desire to be whole. We can, we, we can exert sometimes our will to, to wake us, to open up, to pay attention, to act, and to change. Further, Sanders finds hope in family and community. And yes, families and, and communities can be dysfunctional and damaging, but in many ways they can get things right, give us support while we grapple with the dark, teach us generosity and, and fidelity and mercy, help us to negotiate differences if you've grown up with a variety of brothers and sisters and thinks, think, 
where in the world did these people come from and how am I related to them? Hmm, it's a puzzlement. But we learn to negotiate in a family. There's also the hope in fidelity and faithfulness to a person, to a vocation, to a, a cause that embraces our whole heart. Our ability to stand fast to a course, to a partner, to a faith community is filled with an infinite succession of present moments and with hope for the future. Sanders further finds hope in, in the idea of simplicity, um, that more is not always better, and in our capacity for restraint based on our knowledge of the world and our compassion for others. Hope arises from beauty, the beauty of nature, the beauty of music and, and ritual, the, the beauty that shines through these stained glass windows. The beauty of quantum mechanics and patchwork quilts. This beauty expands us, gives us a, a wider view of life, takes us beyond our personal boundaries. Beauty, Sanders writes, feeds us from the same source that created us. Another writer, I don't remember who, said it, the world did not have to be so beautiful, but it is, it is. A universe so prodigal of beauty, Sanders writes, may actually need us to notice and respond, may need our sharp eyes and brimming hearts and teeming minds in order to close the circuit of creation. Sanders ends by saying, my aim is not to persuade you to accept my vision, but rather to invite you to clarify your own. And my aim, too, along with Sanders, is not to, to tell you that this ought to be your idea of hope. It is to help you start thinking about where you find hope. Where is your theology? Where is your atheology? Your God-given, you're not God-given your world-given idea of where we find hope. Now, hope looks to the future, believes we have a future, and believes that this future will be a decent world, a world which, in which we and our children and our grandchildren, my great-granddaughter, can lead useful, joyful, purposeful lives. It will be a different world from ours. But realistic imagination fosters realistic hope. Now, Joanna Macy is a Buddhist and an ecologist, and she writes of our coming back to life, coming back to a bone-deep knowledge of our connection with all things. And for her, too, this coming back is a, is a journey, a journey through our despair, through our hopelessness, a breaking through the, the hard, cold ground of our lives, of some of the facts of our lives. We are dealing with, whole, with the hard facts of living in this world. But coming back to life, we, we recognize the profound commonality of ourselves and of our caring. Coming back to life, we commit to a deep and careful search for our sources of hope. And my goodness, you have this preacher who comes up and says, so what is your theology of hope? And I often think that Unitarian Universalists who don't have this 
these beliefs that I tell you to believe have, are, is, some of the, is one of the hardest faith communities to live into because we are always growing and honing and changing our idea of how we work in the world, how the world works, how we ought to be in the world, how we can make a world a better place. My goodness, it is hard work for us to be Unitarian Universalists. Bless each and every one of you for coming here week after week after week and trying. And this hope is, is rooted in our Universalist history, in our Unitarian history. In 1770, John Murray came to America from England. Now, he had been, he had been a Methodist minister, excommunicated from the Methodist church for his unorthodox beliefs in universal salvation. His wife and his son had died, and he had served a term in debtor's prison. And while in England, Murray had converted to universalism. Universalism in this country and abroad was a, a response to the idea of predestination, that it had been predetermined from the very beginning of time who was going to go to heaven and who certainly wasn't, you know. Universalists fervently believed that God was a God of love. If we were to believe in any God at all, he, she, it, God was a God of love who embraced all God's children and who in the end gathered all God's children to that Godhood. God was simply too good to condemn God's followers to hellfire. And John Murray preached to his followers saying, Go out into the highways and the byways. Give the people something of your new vision. You may possess a small light, but uncover it. Let it shine. Use it in order to bring more light and understanding to the hearts and the minds of men and women. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Preach the kindness and the everlasting love of God. Hope, the, the, the belief that we will have a future and that this future will involve a decent world in which we and our children and our grandchildren and beyond can lead useful, joyful, purposeful lives. Hope is rooted deeply in our history. Hope, sperare, a, a feeling of expansiveness, of an embrace of a wider view made up of an infinite succession of present moments. Now the poet Macrina Wiedeker writes, I was just thinking one morning during meditation how much alike hope is and baking, hope and baking powder are. Quietly getting what is best in me to rise, awakening the hint of eternity within. I always think of that when I eat biscuits now and wish that I could be more faithful to the hint of eternity, the baking power, the baking powder, the baking power in me. Now this kind of hope encircles the ideas of faith in humankind and faith in the future, the idea of possibility, of anticipation and expectancy, the feeling of being on the edge of our seats, filled with the vision of the future in which all are welcomed at the bountiful table of existence, 
a future that assumes the best about people, their abilities, their goodness, their potential, a future that works towards sweeping away injustices that, so that all God's people may flourish. Now, that it, it is told, the story is told that when God finished with creation, she, had, she desired to leave something behind, a small piece of divinity, a, a wholeness, so that humans could experience this delight. But, but God was a bit of a trickster, um, so she decided that she wasn't going to make um, this search for this little bit of divinity too easy for human beings to find, and she wasn't sure at first where to put this special something, so she asked the other beings, the other beings, living things in creation. And someone suggested that maybe God should put this little bit of divinity up in the stars, and God said, hmm, you know, I think those folks are smart enough that someday they will get up to the stars. That might be too simple. And some other living creatures said, well, maybe you should put them deep down in the sea. God thought about that, and you know, these are smart critters. They're going to get down to the bottom of the sea, too. So they thought, and they thought, and they thought, and they thought, and God said, I think I know the spot to put it. A spot that is higher than the sky, deeper than the deepest place in the sea. I'll put them inside. I'll put that bit of divinity inside them. They may never look there. And this small piece of divinity and wholeness goes by many different names, love, compassion, joy, hope. We each have it deep inside of us if we only look. So in this deepening cold of winter, may we come back to life, recognize our strengths, our interconnections, our baking powder, our baking power. May we live fully into an infinite succession of present moments. As they say on many of those game shows, you must be present to win. May we find courage and compassion and care to make ourselves whole, to make this world a bit more whole, to come back to the fullness of life with hope. May it ever be so. May we make it so. Blessed be. And amen.